reopens debate on religion, freedom, and government. Interesting, um, very interesting, um, very interesting, um, recording I found. The number of cars. One six zero five five six two zero four four four. Call ID number five 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 one. Nine pound. We're gonna we're gonna go to that program in just a moment. And of course, I'll be taking your phone calls. And tomorrow's King Day. We are we're going to remember Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. On his Good. Glad to hear that. So, what are we talking about tonight? Let's see. Tonight, other than the King Holiday, Foster Christian Foster Care reopens debate on religious freedom and government. Religious freedom in the government. Yeah. Okay, that sounds good. Yeah, and the King Holiday, um, and of course the, that as well. I just I just did a message on uh, Martin Luther King's uh, uh, holiday <clears throat> about nonviolence was justified. Yeah. So how do I sound? <laughs> yeah, like. So what? No big thing. All right. It, it, sound, I got it sounds pretty good. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. I, I changed mics. Sound better than last week, that's for sure. The week before last, yeah. I mean. Last yeah. week wasn't too bad. Yeah. Okay, hold on, y'all. Christian um, foster care reopens debate on religious freedom and religious freedom. This was from WBRU and Boston. The name program is called On Point.
This message comes from On Point's sponsor, Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Introducing rate shield approval. If you qualify and if rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. To learn more, go to rocketmortgage.com slash on point. From WBUR Boston and NPR, I'm Meghna Chakraborty, and this is On Point. Last year, a South Carolina faith-based organization turned away a couple that wanted to become foster parents. Why? Well, the couple was Jewish, and Miracle Hill Ministries has been clear for years that it will accept only Christian parents into its foster care program. Miracle Hill also received some $600,000 in state and federal funding in the last fiscal year. Now they're at risk of losing their license and that funding. But South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster has asked the Trump administration to grant Miracle Hill a non-discrimination waiver, saying that the group and others like it could be shut out of providing any foster care assistance if they're asked to accept non-Christian parents. So this is just the latest tension in the long-running debate over religious freedom and government social services, especially when those faith-based organizations receive taxpayer funding. So this hour on point, let's explore how church and state clash when it comes to federal funding for foster care and other social services. And you can join us. How do we balance the needs of faith-based organizations and the social services they provide with anti-discrimination laws and taxpayer dollars? Join us anytime at onpointradio.org or Twitter and Facebook at On Point Radio. Well, joining us first today from Washington is Laura Meckler, reporter for the Washington Post who drew our attention to this topic. You can find a link to her piece. It's headlined, A Christian Ministry Won't Change Its Christians-Only Criteria for Foster Care Parents. Is that okay with Trump? And that piece is linked at onpointradio.org. Laura Meckler, welcome to On Point. Thanks for having me. Okay, so first of all, tell us a little bit more uh, about Miracle Hill. Uh, I should say that we did reach out to them. Uh, they declined to join us on the air today. They sent us a statement, which I'll uh, read from later. But but tell us a little bit more about Mir- Miracle Hill. How long have they been operating in South Carolina? What do they do? Well, they are, um, they are a Christian ministry. They do a lot of different social services, including having a, a, a foster care program, which they've actually had for many years. Um, they had it, we're, we're working with foster children even before they got funding from the state, which of course comes ultimately from the federal government. Uh, but now they do, they are a typical uh, taxpayer funded foster care agencies, just like many others in South Carolina and many others across many the country. They're a nonprofit organization that recruits foster parents, trains them, and then helps and then children who are in need of foster care uh, from foster the state care. into their homes. So that's what they do. They've been doing it for a long time. Their application in order to be a foster parent actually says that ask them to um, attest to their Christian faith and to talk about their Christian faith and what it means to them. And um, when this came to the attention of South Carolina Department of Social Services, they realized that this runs afoul of both state and federal policy. Um, in particular, a federal regulation put in place by the Obama administration in its closing days, and they were informed that they needed to change their policy or risk um, being taken out of the program. Now, is is this a unique policy amongst foster care uh, agencies in South Carolina? Because I imagine there are a lot of other space-based agencies are providing the services, these services in the state. That's right. And, and we should keep in mind there's a lot of social service work that is done quite well in many cases by faith-based organizations. Um, the state 
uh, tells us that there are 11 faith-based organizations doing foster care work in South Carolina, but that Miracle Hill is the only one that requires foster parents to be Christian and to state their Christian faith. Okay, so we actually, again, we reached out to Mission Hill, uh, sorry, to Miracle Hill, I should say, uh, to see if they, they or someone from the organization would join us. They, they declined to do that. They did send us a, a statement here uh, where they said that um, those who oppose our existence argue that we prevent people from fostering. This is simply not true, they said in the statement. Our existence as a foster care agency does not prevent anyone from fostering. We are not the sole provider for the state of South Carolina. So, so Laura Meckler, talk to me about that for, for a second. I mean, do they not have an argument here that if families who, um, you know, who aren't Christian um, and Miracle Hill doesn't want to work with them, they, they do have other options in the state. So what is the, what's the core problem? Well, that's very true. They definitely are not the only foster care, only way to become a foster care parent. There are other options. They are a large agency, but they're by far from the only one. So, yes, they are, um, in fact, there are other options, and also they, Miracle Hill also makes the case, I don't know if they did so in that statement, but they told me that if they're kicked out of the program, that in fact will decrease the availability of foster parents because they are recruiting foster parents into the system. So, so they do make a point. Now, on the other side, the argument is that, you know, there are certain standards that need to be met, and one of those standards is not discriminating on the basis of religion. And if they are not willing to do that, then you know, you're not make, you're not meeting the rules of the program. So right. exception isn't made for you just because somebody else is meeting the rules of the program. Right. So I should say that they did they did say that in their statement to us as well. They said we are under threat of losing our license unless we abandon our religious convictions. We are deeply concerned that Miracle Hill Ministries and other faith-based organizations like ours will be shut out of the system, thereby worsening the foster care crisis. Now, Laura, you're your reporting was so interesting that we actually we, we sent Miracle Hill a couple of questions via email to see if they'd respond um, to those questions, and they did. And one of those questions, we were very curious about this sort of statement of faith, right, that they ask potential foster parents to submit to them. And it's, it's there on their website, right, when you apply to be in their foster program, sort of there at the bottom, you're supposed to submit your story, your testimony, but your, your statement of faith. So we asked them um, that a, a spokeswoman for South Carolina Social Services says Miracle Hill is the only organization that insists foster parents do this. So we emailed them and said, would the organization be willing to eliminate requiring this signed statement? If not, why not? And Miracle Hill, just so you know, Laura, they wrote us back and they said, well, they don't see that as requiring a signed statement of faith, but what they do ask for is prospective foster parents share their church affiliation and their personal testimony of their faith or salvation. And they say those who serve with Miracle Hill must support their mission, which includes sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with those they minister to. So that's how they view it, that, that if, you're, if you're going to be in the program as a foster parent, you have to uh, believe deeply in what their fundamental mission is. That's right. And what they would say is that that's part of being a good person, being a good Christian and being a good person go together, and that the um, not that you can't be a good person if you're not Christian, but that that's their way of being in the world and that the children who are placed in these homes will get the benefit of that sort of family by being around it. So tell us then, how is it that the Trump administration is looking upon this? Because we've had um, sort of the same debate, the same tension in both in the, in the administration of George W. Bush, in the Obama administration. How has uh, the balance between protecting 
faith-based organizations and also uh, non-anti-discrimination laws. How's that playing out in the Trump administration? Well, it's really interesting because you had both, just to go back a little bit, both, you know, George W. Bush really pushed the envelope to try to get more faith-based organizations involved, although he always drew a line and said there was no discrimination allowed against beneficiaries. Her, you know, it may be a, a, a jump ball to determine whether the foster parents are more like employees or they're more like beneficiaries, but in any case, they always drew that very clear line. The Obama administration also wanted faith-based organizations involved, but also drew some lines. The Trump administration has, in its rhetoric and in some of its policies, been much less concerned about these anti-discrimination matters and much more interested in accommodating the needs of um, the religious community. However, it's very interesting to me because it's been a year since the governor requested this waiver, and they still haven't gotten it. And internal emails that the ACLU um, was able to get from HHS and that they shared with me show conversation among senior HHS officials where it looks like this thing is ready to roll. Like they over last summer, they said, we're expecting it any day and it meaning a waiver. They're expecting to be given the go ahead to allow Miracle Hill to stay in the program. But yet here we are halfway through January and we haven't seen it yet. Well, what, what does that signal to you? Well, it signals, signals to me that this is a lot tougher question than um, some people might think, and that even for the Trump administration, this is a difficult call. Well, Lauren Meckler, reporter for the Washington Post, her story uh, it headlined, A Christian Ministry Won't Change Its Christian-Only Criteria for Foster Care Parents. Is that okay with Trump? We've got a link to that again at onpointradio.org. Laura, thank you so much for your reporting and for drawing our attention to this. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, and thanks for doing the show. Well, let's now get a, another perspective, because this is a big and, and weighty issue. So let's turn to Robin Fretwell Wilson, joining us from Salt Lake City, Utah. She is a direct professor of law and director of the Family Law and Policy Program at the University of Illinois. Robin Fretwell Wilson, welcome to the program. Thank you, Magna. So first of all, tell us, you know, your first thoughts about uh, this issue with Miracle Hill Ministries in, in South Carolina. Do, do you believe they've, they've crossed a, a line, an anti-discrimination line, in requiring potential foster parents to be Christian in order for them to be part of their program? So I should tell you, I'm not just a law professor. I'm actually an adopted child, and I've been doing some work on these questions. And what's sort of interesting is, have they crossed a line, a legal line? Absolutely, yes. Um, Laura's piece and, and her comments just now really very helpful on pointing out that at the end of the Obama administration, a specific regulation was put in place that said not only could you not discriminate on the basis of existing, pre-existing uh, classes, so think the classic grounds on which we in the United States have said we won't discriminate in federal law, a race, color, national origin, and here I'm reading from like the Civil Rights Act. Mm -hmm. And then gets added to that religion. And interestingly enough, we don't have bans on religious discrimination in America in all of our federal laws. They're like piecemeal. And also added at that same moment was sexual orientation and gender identity. And in your sort of lead-up to uh, the discussion with Laura, you talked about how this was just the latest sort of strafe between religious freedom and taxpayer-funded services. But the, the, the huge blow-up about this around the country has been about same-sex couples similarly situated with the Jewish couple who show up and they want nothing more than to take a child into their care. And then they're told, not you. 
by somebody who is receiving federal dollars. So that's a legal marker that was put in place by the Obama administration, and not surprisingly, South Carolina's own uh, regulations and code say, uh, for the most part, that, you know, we're not doing that either. Mm. Well, you know, when we come back, we're going to talk about how, especially when it comes to the foster care system and children, how this becomes really thorny, because there is this crisis and there's this need for foster parents and foster care around the country. So, Robin Fretwell-Wilson, stand by here for just a second. We're talking about the latest evolution in this long-running tension uh, between faith-based organizations offering critical social services and taxpayer dollars that are going to those organizations, and how to balance that against concerns about anti-discrimination. We'll be right back. This is On Point. My name is Dale Pazinski. I'm 19 years old, and this is how I live United. I've always been kind of a computer geek, and I found a way to use those skills to help the homeless in my community. For people facing hard times, computer skills and a basic resume are so important. It may seem like a small thing, but it makes a huge difference in people's lives. So with United Way, I created a program where I work with the homeless. Together, we go through their whole job history, write a resume, and then save it on their very own USB drive. We provide workbooks and training certificates. I even budgeted for cupcakes so we can celebrate as a class when one of our people gets a job. That's huge. When somebody says, hey man, that job that you helped me apply for, I got it. That's what Living United feels like to me. My name is Dale Pazinski. I help people achieve financial independence. So I don't just wear the shirt, I live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Hey, Ben. This message comes from On Point's sponsor, Indeed. When it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting to your short list of qualified candidates fast. With Indeed, post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on qualified candidates. And when you need to hire fast, accelerate your results with sponsored jobs. New users can try for free when you sign up at Indeed.com slash NPR podcast. Terms, conditions, and quality standards apply. Hey, it's Peter Sagel from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. If you're a normal Wait, Wait listener, you shout out the answers to all the questions, and then you get frustrated that no one can tell how smart you are. Here's the solution, the Wait, Wait Quiz, available now on your smart speaker. Just ask your smart speaker to open the Wait, Wait Quiz. Finally, your genius shall be recognized. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. We're talking about the long-running tension between faith-based organizations providing critical social services in America and taxpayer funding for those organizations, especially in cases in which uh, those organizations are being seen as discriminating against certain Americans. The latest 
skirmish, a significant skirmish, I should say, uh, in, in this debate. It's happening in South Carolina, where an organization called Miracle Hill Ministries is under threat of losing its license and its taxpayer funding because it will not accept non-Christian parents or foster, potential foster parents turned away a Jewish couple last year. Robin Fretwell-Wilson joins us. She's director of the Family Law and Policy Program at the University of Illinois. And, uh, and, and Robin, I should say that, again, repeat this a couple of times here, we definitely did reach out to Miracle Hill to see if they'd want to join us, and they declined. But they sent us a statement, and I want to, it's quite a lengthy statement, so I just want to read a different part of it to you and get your reaction to this. Because, you know, they talk about how if they definitely, at least if they lose their license and if they lose their federal funding, that it will prevent them from offering fostering services at all. That would enhance the, the foster care crisis in this country. And then they go on to say, though, that those who serve with us in positions of spiritual leadership or authority, including foster parents or mentors, mentors must, and they underline, must share our beliefs because they are partners with us in ministry. We can't share the good news if the people who serve with us don't believe the good news. Now, this idea that they see their foster care services as partners, as, as a ministry, is that not, it's definitely their deeply held belief, but isn't that where they run afoul of, of state and federal laws when they're receiving taxpayer dollars? Well, you would think so. So let me go back to the Obama regulation for just a second. Um, and this is going to sound like administrative law class or a primer on administrative law, so I apologize in advance. Don't apologize. But, the details matter. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, agencies interpret statutes by and large. And it's Congress that sort of sets this sort of federal norms, if you want to think of it. And a lot of these dollars, it's about 46% of all the dollars spent in the state, Magna. So we're talking about the feds having a big chunk of the responsibility and the oversight for what's happening. But those regulations that were there, I went back and pulled um, basically statutes that run through the Federal Department of Health and Human Services. And some of them over time added religion as a prohibited grounds of discrimination. None of them have sexual orientation or gender identity right now, as we were saying before. Mm -hmm. And then we have this regulation um, that is from the Obama administration at the end of, um, you know, the last administration that's going to prohibit now three new grounds uh, for discrimination against, um, you know, a beneficiary. And this is where it gets really sticky. That is not a federal statute being interpreted. It is the agency thinking and saying, we don't want to do this here. Then you have another piece of federal law that complicates it in the other direction, which is sort of sounding like Miracle Hill in the, in the letter and the statement that you read. And that's that we have dueling non-discrimination duties mm -hmm. in federal law where religious agencies have been guaranteed in, in different buckets of money uh, that run through HHS that they won't be discriminated against on the other side. And they can get to the super hard question about should you be able to push ideas in what's basically a public service that's being moderated or, you know, done on behalf of the state by a faith-based organization. 
And then we have all kinds of things. Um, running into the saying yes and no. And so it's just interesting. We know we're getting a lot of comments coming in about this. And there's a, there's a Let me just read some to you. Let me just read this from Stefano. This is a classic example of the Miracle Hill continues to be a beneficiary derived from taxation of the entire public. Be required it should be required to cater to the entire religion should not include religion. So one of you there saying, well, the, the answer is simple. To deny, deny, to deny, deny to any group who says that they're going to close their doors. Their doors. Their doors. Their doors. Their doors. Is that going too far? Too far than the other extreme? I don't know that it goes too far. I don't know that it goes too far, but I think that's about intuition. But here's a challenge. But here's a challenge. And this is less about South Carolina than it is about other places. South Carolina, I talked to the Department South of Carolina, uh, last week. There were lots and lots of providers in this catchment area. I mean, you, know, you sort of think about like, same thing with the same thing with the catchment area. Because so there's a sense in which there's a sense in which why change in terms of how it's doing now. And I think there are two and I think there are two answers to consideration for this is too much religion. This is too much religion. We're not willing to do this. One is how one is how social services load are they carrying? Because at the end of the day, this entire project is about getting children into foster care in the foster care ruptures in their family of origin and then when that can't be made we need to get them into permanent loving families like you know my parents adopted you know my parents adopted the thing is supposed to be about children and here's the challenge and here's the challenge for stuff that i have those core and have those core into which some states and some religious Social services agencies are carrying like 25% of the blood. We have 406,000 foster children in foster care today. And we're at risk of screening them. So that's one huge problem. We know we don't have a lot of colleagues. We want to bring them in here through the rest of the hour. We want to talk about solutions here. But so many comments on Twitter and Marine said, Evangelism in disguise. Let's go to Sarah. Who's calling well, let's from go to Sarah. Sarah, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking Hi. my call. Hi, thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. What's your thought? You're welcome. Hello? What's your thought? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Sarah. Um, yeah. So uh, my husband so, uh, and I, we are uh, Christians, and we were just we for, for a while. For a while. Um, and like my comment is that like, like, I, I understand what the organization what the is trying to do, and I should do it. However, I also don't also believe don't that if they're receiving federal funding, that they can discriminate against other people. And like we really just have too many children in need of loving and safe homes to be discriminatory. But they want to keep that policy, like, that's fine, they just, like, they'll have to fund themselves another way, and, like, as a Christian, to any other Christians who might be listening, like, if you're in favor of this, then, then fund them, like, then donate, like, and, and don't require them to rely on federal funding that should be available to everyone, regardless, um, for something that we believe is important, 
um, that we, we can and should fund that. Yeah, well, Sarah, thank you so much for your call. Uh, let me go. Uh, let me go. 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 It's really great to have you. Also with us now is Maggie Garrett. She's also joining us from Washington. She's from Washington, President for Public Policy American United for Separation of Church and State and Chair of the Coalition Against Religious Discrimination. Maggie Garrett, welcome to Maggie Garrett, welcome to Thanks for having me. So, Maggie Garrett, let me just start with you here. You've been hearing Robin Fretwell. Take us through sort of the statutes of regarding faith-based organizations and providing these social services. But you have a pretty... Pretty straightforward point of view about, point of view about with Miracle Hill. What's your view? So this policy so puts this the narrow religious view of a taxpayer-funded entity that is foster care agency above the best interest of children seeking children seeking homes. No child should be denied of the family because the parents are to care for them and love them can't have the religious past of a government funding. No parent who is only to take care of a child should be turned away because of the wrong religion or because of LGBTQ. Using taxpayer money is always wrong. And it's even more troubling here because it's kids who have to pay the price. Well, you know, Miracle Hill in their statement to us said that they have a concern that if they're denied their funding and or their license, that they and other organizations will be shut down, shut out of the system, and then worsening the foster care crisis. So that like, that, that, that consequence is more damaging to children than the current situation. So I don't really think that's true. I think you know, there are parents who are willing to adopt and foster children. Same-sex couples are six times more likely to foster, four times more likely to adopt than opposite-sex couples, and they have a policy of just off the bat turning those parents away. Um, there are parents who want to take care of children, um, who need um, and I think we need to think about those um, who are in foster care agencies who are being told, no, you can't do this home, this home. parents are willing to love and take care of you because they don't have work. And also, these children are wards of the state. Um, they they used to go to this adoption it is a tough one, um, but I, I do think there is a way forward in a way that it doesn't need to be a zero-sum game where one side needs to lose and the other wins. I, I really think we can find a, a way to say, hey, any loving parent who wants to foster can have a clear pathway to fostering, and at the same time, faith-based groups and serving kids and families for, for decades continue to be part of the, the child welfare system. And, and so really that's, that's the main question at stake here is, are there barriers that keep families that want to foster and are qualified for doing that. And the answer really is right now in any state in the country, uh, any qualified family, including LGBTQ couples, um, including people of any faith or none at all, can foster. And so really the question is here is can certain organizations desire to uh, bring on either staff members or foster parents um, to, you know, the, the respect their faith and values, uh, can they continue to do that as, as they have to do that? So I'm trying to, with the with the, uh, the issue of Miracle Hill, though, I think as Laura Meckler, the Washington Post uh, reporter, was telling us earlier, 
the governor of South Carolina is seeking a waiver, right, for, for Miracle Hill. And, and it, it, currently it's the only faith-based organization or, or fostering agency in the state that, that requires would-be foster parents to be foster Christians. Now, say that waiver is granted, uh, Jed Medifin, wouldn't it, wouldn't it essentially be uh, a state sanction, a federal sanction for a discriminatory practice? Well, you know, I, I think that well, you know, I, I think so many other agencies in the state, we just would need to make sure, and I think this is make sure, sure, we need to make sure that any qualified foster any family would have a clear path to fostering. Um, and then when we when turn um, to the organization and kind of look at the regulation, and it's important, I think, making to realize this is this is not law. This is a regulation put into place by the Obama administration. By the Obama administration. Um, and, and really, the actually, the, the national policy, if you look at most federal laws and statutes, in, including the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, they allow faith-based organizations to uh, choose their staff and volunteers based upon the shared. That only makes sense. A faith-based organization really stops being faith-based if, if it can't, um, you know, choose its its team from from people who share those values, whether it's Jewish or Muslim or, or Christian or again, folks again, folks again that all, not faith at all. That's really consistent with American law going going back centuries. Yeah. So Maggie Garrett, would you like to respond to that? Yeah, you know, this is taxpayer money. It's a taxpayer-funded program. These kids are in the care of the government. This is government-funded discrimination. There's just no way around it. And to the idea that an organization can say both, I want the money just like everybody else, but once I get the money, you have to treat me differently and give me um, different standards because I'm religious. That just, it's, it's wrong and it's unfair. And um, I really think that you need to think about the parents who are turned away. You need to think about... Um, a child who is, you know, the, the perfect parents might be there and they might be turned around the way based on their religion. Um, and think about this woman, um, you know, a Jewish woman who has experience in mentoring, experience in fostering, and she was told, I'm sorry, we don't, we don't deal with you because you're Jewish. I mean, that's just that's not who we are as a nation. Not how our taxpayer dollars are spent. Now, Robin Fretwell Wilson, come back in here because I mean the issue of the taxpayer funding is one of the things that's really at the heart here. I mean, how so? Right now, the system for, as far as I understand, for agencies providing um, foster care assistance, is that the money, the state and federal money, goes directly to the agency. Are there other examples of how we could do this that might alleviate this this tension? Well, you know, Sarah, one of your commenters was really on the right track. He actually described something that four different states in America have already done. They said, okay, if you're going to provide the service, it's a public service, you play by public money. One of the things that's really distressing about the way that Miracle Hill is, is, is sort of teetering in, in terms of its existence right now is people are also saying, and we'll strip you of your license. So even as... Sarah said if, if people privately fundraise or if, if the group privately had private dollars to do this work, they would be put out of business. So one line to cut, and I think it's a very sensible one, Magna, is to say public money, public rules, but we're not going to crush you out of existence. And then I think there's a second point that's really important here, which is religious agencies, just like LGBT-friendly agencies, just like all kinds of groups, they operate in niches. In other words, they do a great job pulling certain types of people forward, 
And if you just look at the couple who presented being turned away, I think this is heartbreaking. But if this group is really good at, like, sort of going out and developing families and getting more people to come forward, if we take some of the sort of relationships to their own community and getting them to step forward as adopters, and we crush them out of existence entirely. We go backwards in terms of our, all of the goals I think we're agreeing on, whether kids are going to be made better off. And I think it's a very, very difficult calculus. I personally would try to break off those early services, like the identification license. I think people shouldn't be walking into agencies and stumbling on to a moment where they're told not you or you're less than. That is a horrible thing to do to someone who wants nothing more than to adopt. The state should be running a lot of this interference. And then when the state does do that, I think you're getting closer to the image that Jed painted for you, which is could not have all hands on deck, all families yeah. that want to adopt, all agencies that do really good work. Uh, so, Jed Medicine, though, let me turn back to you. But I think part of the concern that perhaps some listeners have and perhaps commenters coming in online is that this, does this not open the door to just, you know, highly sectarian uh, approach to things? Like, what if a Christian family whose local foster care service or faith-based organization was... Uh, was a Jewish one or an Islamic one, and the Christian family went to that organization and said, we want to be foster parents, but they were turned away because they were Christian. I mean, wouldn't there be an outcry over that? Right. I, I mean, I, I agree with you, Meg, that these are, these are tough issues. They, they have been since before the founding of the country. They continue to be. But I, I really do think that we can, we can you know, map out a basic uh, agreement, which I think is, is, goes back all the way to the Constitution, where we say faith-based organizations are a vital part of this. And we need them to be for the sake of um, and yet, they retain their their unique uh, character as long as every willing parent has a pathway to fostering. So we want to make sure that Jewish family does, the Muslim family, the Christian family, the atheist family, if they're qualified, as long as they have a path, we need to make sure that that is in, in place and stays that way. Well, we've got a lot more to talk about when we come back, so let's just take a quick break. This is on point. Suffering. Why does God allow it? Answers with Ken Ham, co-author of the book on why so many young people are leaving the church, entitled Already Gone. You know, perhaps the most asked question of all time is, why does God allow suffering? Well, what is the answer? After the terrorist attacks on the United States ten years ago, we heard lots of Christian leaders expressing grief and calling on people to pray. Now, that was good, of course, but sadly, few Christian leaders provided biblical answers to explain what happened. Some went so far as to say there was no explanation. But God isn't the answer. In fact, he's raised it high for all to see. You see, Genesis records a true history of death. God originally created a perfect world. There was no violence or pain. But this sinless world was ruined by the rebellion of the first man, Adam. His sin brought an intruder into the world, death. And God had to judge sin with death. You see, we all sinned in Adam, who represented us. Our sins, not just the sins of the other guy, of course. In other words, it's really our fault the world is the way it is. For more eye-opening teaching on why God allows terrorism, death, and bloodshed today, get a copy of Ken's DVD on this timely topic. You'll find out what the Bible teaches about death and suffering. This 30-minute DVD is yours when you call toll-free and make a gift of any size. 1-888-89-ANSWERS. Or get Ken's video through our website of answersoffer.org.
before you can start your day, you like to know what's happening in the news. That's what Up First is for. It's the morning news podcast from NPR. The news you need to take on the day in just about 10 minutes. Listen to Up First on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. We're talking this hour about the latest in the long-running tension between the federal funding taxpayer dollars and the critical social services Please. that many faith-based organizations provide in this country. Uh, our conversation is spurred by a case currently going on in South Carolina where a faith-based group called Michael Hill Ministries turned away a, a Jewish couple uh, who wanted to be foster parents because Miracle Hill Ministries says that its foster parents have to be Christians. I'm joined today by Robin Fretwell Wilson. She's a professor of law and director of the Family Law and Policy Program at the University of Illinois. Jed Medicine joins us. He's president of Christian Alliance for Orphans and was the head of the Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives during the presidency of George W. Bush. Maggie Garrett is also with us. She's vice president for public policy for Americans United for Separation of Church and State and so many comments coming in online. We've got Kathy who's saying government funding should not be allowed to be used for discrimination. Adoption and foster parenting should be based on the needs of the child, not the religion. Whereas Josh is telling us, my thought is that punitive actions against these organizations would only serve to harm children needing homes. Any federal funding these organizations receive isn't going to enforce a state religion or to perpetuate one set of beliefs over another. Well, let's go to Angela, who's calling from Duncan, South Carolina. Angela, you're on the air. Hello. I think Ministries Hill has opened opportunity for other groups to do the same. I uh, may be on the adoption side, the child could state their belief. I agree with the argument uh, regarding taxpayers and proper um, decisions made improperly. However, if we were really concerned about that, we would be taking a look at Hobby Lobby, Chick-fil-A, and Cracker Barrel, who actually take away health rights from women regarding birth control pills. My daughter was nine, 11, nine years old and suffered from migraines and birth control pills. And we're, we're Christians. Hmm. And my friends have told me that I could go work somewhere else. We're Christians. And I said, that's crazy. Hmm. And, uh, Thank you for your time. Okay. Thank you so much for the call. Let's go to Holly, who's calling from Columbia, South Carolina. Holly, you're on the air. Hi. I wonder if people are aware that Governor McMaster a couple of weeks ago signed a proclamation declaring January South Carolina Interfaith Harmony Month. Uh, I happen to serve on the board of the board of South Carolina. We were extremely diverse religiously for centuries, long before it was a state. And I think that work like Miracle Hill Ministry forget that they get to define what Christianity is for everybody else. It's, uh, it's a big uh, religion with a lot of uh, branches, but there are also many of us. Uh, in other religions, uh, and I wonder if choosing one religion for your volunteers is thinking about what's best for the children. Mm. Holly, thank you for your call. Thank you for your medical call. Medical 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 yeah. Well, I would first just want to agree the heart of what she's saying that the, the, the goal should be diversity in the public square, whether in our public discussions and debates or in our child welfare system, whether in our diverse partners we have, each with a unique strength and different points of view, is really key. I think the greatness of the American experiment, and, and so I, 
I, I really affirm that. I think the, 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 the way that we pursue that isn't necessarily to force individual groups to, to sacrifice those things. It's rather to, to find ways to invite them in um, and with those with those distinctives and tasks. And, you know, it, it, I think a huge part of it, Megna, is, is focusing on who are we serving here. And in the foster system, it's the children that are the beneficiaries. They're the ones who are being hurt and neglected. And, and we're together as a society trying to serve them. And, and so, you know, while foster parents play a critical role in that, I'm a foster parent myself, um, we're not the beneficiaries. And so when Miracle Hill is choosing to, to in a sense, bring in their, their volunteers, their employees, um, they, they should have they, a right they should to have
There is a different model for how we fund uh, these services, right? I think you've written that with some early childhood development for, uh, for uh, families, the families get a certificate and they choose where to spend it. So should we do something similar uh, in, in, the, in the foster care system? Is we'd have to break with something that Jed said, which is this idea that the only beneficiary of the system is the child. Right now, agencies don't get paid for anything until the child gets placed. So they do all of these first steps, identifying a family, training a family, uh, home studying the family, and then what I call certifying that family and saying, okay, you're a proper family. Then they engage with the state, looking for a home and matching a child. Um, to a home when there's a rupture in their family. Okay, so those early steps are where a lot of the problems are. Later steps are not the issue so much for most agencies. Um, and Amir Cahill may be different in this and not positive. We do the same thing, though, with early childhood development, right? So we give a certificate to families that they can spend on what's basically daycare. So the child could go to a Lutheran school. They could go to a Montessori. You could spend your certificate with grandma if she's the best person to take care of your child. And what's important about that is the family's a beneficiary of dollars from the U.S. government, but they're also the decision maker about who's going to provide that specific service. They're not forced through a checkpoint. They're not winners and losers uh, chosen by the state. Instead, the family decides who best serves them. Now, for that to work, you don't want to have people stumbling into an agency that's going to tell them to get lost, right? I call those moments of ugliness, and I just think they're, they're heartbreaking and tragic. You're going to have to have the state explain to people that they have this ability to direct themselves to agencies to help them, and then we just have better matches. That keeps all that keeps all the and families are transitioning. Maggie's right. I think for there to be this process is really, really awful, and we just need to interpose the state between these agencies and empower families. Power. The other concern though, yeah. that Maggie brought up earlier, and hopefully Maggie, I'm paraphrasing, you said correctly, that there's still issues of the children who are being placed through these agencies not necessarily having, I mean, in the case of Miracle Hill, not having any choice or say necessarily in being placed with a Christian or not any family. Yeah, I mean, we haven't really seen that. You know, if you okay. think about it, it's, it's, it's yeah, you know, yeah. Right? Yeah. there's a rupture. There's a rupture. A parent who has a drug event, and somebody needs to take this child. Um, and the state usually is on the phone calling multiple agencies um, trying to find out uh, where um, we're going to place that child. So in some sense, a child is sitting on a shelf that's not getting placed. Now, if we're glib about this and we crater the system because we say religious agencies, you know, you're, quote, Crater the system because we say religious agencies We may actually have lots of lots of children we can't really manage the families very well. So I think... You know, I think we do best when families that are going to adopt actually and, and foster are actually in the driver's seat. Let's give you an example from my family. My father grew up in Virginia, and my father was raised in Appalachia, and I was adopted in 1966. At that time, for a man to admit that he and his wife couldn't have a child naturally, it was a really big mountain for him to climb. And if he had gone to an agency and they had said, you're not the perfect family, you're not the holy family, you're not the Christian family, you're not anything, 
He would have said, Alice, we're out of here. We're going home. Mm-hmm. And that would have been it. And two children who wound up in wonderful family would not have had that specific family. So the dignitary loss is real. But on the other side of it, the, the good that these agencies can do by doing that work is really profound mm-hmm. because they're carrying a lot of our load. Well, you know, I want to sneak in a couple more callers here before we really run out of time. So let's go to Dustin, who's calling from Lakeland, Florida. You're on the air, Dustin. Hi, Magna. Thank you. Hello. Um, I am a professing follower of Jesus. You know, I'd be considered a Christian. I'm a licensed foster home. And we are um, licensed through a non-affiliated privatized organization in Central Florida called Heartman for Children. And I think they're doing great work. I think this is a good conversation. We also have a religious-based um, licensing, you know, organization called One More Child, and the partnership that these two organizations have in Central Florida is doing great work. And you know, I just want to point those who are looking for a path forward just to consider, you know, the good work that is being done through caring for children who have no safe place to go and is a last resort to the foster system. Well, Dustin, thank you so much for your call. Let's go to Tracy, who's calling from Virginia Beach. Virginia, you're on the air, Tracy. Hi. I'm actually also a foster parent and adopted my two kiddos from foster camp, and I'm in a same-sex relationship and actually experienced something similar. We were turned away from a a religious-affiliated foster care agency. And to be honest, I'm super glad that it happened because I wouldn't want to go through an agency that didn't support us as who we are as foster parents. There are so many kids out there that need homes. Go through an agency that will support you through the process. Well, Tracy, thank you so much for your call. Uh, Let's get at least one or two more here. Taylor's calling from Baltimore, Maryland. You're on the air, Taylor. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I have... um, more of just a comment where, you know, for me it's disheartening because I'm also in a same-sex marriage and I have known that I have wanted to foster since I was very young, even before high school, before I had uh, come out or done anything in the LGBT community. And so hearing stuff like this is very disheartening and really my thought is, what's to keep other organizations from around the country from doing the exact same thing if this is allowed. Hmm. Taylor, thank you for your call. Well, Jed Medicine, let me turn back to you here because I I want to sort of lean on your experience as being the the former head of the Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives uh, when President George W. Bush was in office. To get back to to Miracle Hill, um, they're waiting for this anti-discrimination waiver. I mean, how do you think this specific case should be best resolved? You know, I, I think that I, I just want to affirm what, the, what these callers have said, because they're talking about very important things, including what, what Taylor said, when a person comes in and if they feel like they're, they're um, being looked down upon because of their sexual orientation or other factors, that, that could be a really deep sting. And so we, we need to take that seriously. We need to take the religious liberty issues very seriously and, and see, you know, are there ways that we can affirm both of those at the same time? And, and, I, and I think as much as it's never going to be a perfect solution, um, what was mapped out in the Bush administration was saying that, that any beneficiary, any, any person, say a homeless person that needs to be served, uh, they can access services at, 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 in any organizations being government funded. Um, but at the same time, faith-based organizations can, can choose their employees, volunteers, and, and of course in this case that would be foster parents um, based upon uh, a shared faith. 
And, and ultimately, the goal there, I think, Meghna, is, is to have the most diversity possible in the child welfare yeah. system. So it sounds um, like that, you, you would grant the waiver. Grant the waiver, um, but make sure that, that we're also really taking pains to protect yeah. the, the basic rights and dignity of, of every citizen, especially those who are willing to foster. Yeah. Well, well, Maggie Garrett, we've got about 45 seconds left here. Your final thought, your response to that? Yeah, I mean, obviously they should not allow this waiver. Religious freedom is meant to um, protect people, to be a shield for, for their religion. It's not meant to be a sword um, that can harm other people. And in this case, kids are getting harmed and parents are getting harmed. Well, Maggie Garrett, Vice President for Public Policy for Americans United for Separation of Church and State, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And Jed Medifin, President of the Christian Alliance for Orphans and former head of the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives in the presidency of George W. Bush, thank you so much for joining us as well. Thank you, Migna. And Robin Fretwell-Wilson, Professor of Law and Director of the Family Law and Policy Program at the University of Illinois. Very much appreciated, Professor Wilson, for joining us and sort of walking us through the details, both statutory and, and digni dignitary, if I can say it that way. But thank you so very much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you, Megna. Folks, keep your comments coming. Go to onpointradio.org. I'm Megna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Evolutionists are all wet when they say that coral is one of the earlier creatures on the evolutionary timeline. If evolution were fact, you would expect the corals to be very simple. You'd also expect them to have changed a lot in over half a billion evolutionary years. However, corals are not simple creatures. The stinger they use to immobilize prey is very complex. At one end of the stinging capsule is a poker covered by a protective cap. At the other end is a hollow tube, coiled like a rope. The capsule itself is filled with a powerful poison. Coral is surprisingly complex to be so near the bottom of the evolutionary ladder. In addition, the earliest corals in the fossil record are the same as those found today. So again, the scientific evidence fits well with the biblical story of creation. For Creation Moments Minute, I'm Darren Marlar. Hey, Nick Cannon here. So, of course, we all know there's lots of talent in America. But unfortunately, there's something else we've got way too much of. Childhood hunger. 17 million kids struggle with it in this country. But here's the thing. This problem is entirely solvable. Seriously, we already produce more than enough healthy, nutritious food in this country to feed every single last one of those hungry kids. We just need a way to get it to them. That's why the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks is out there every day gathering surplus food to give hope to hungry kids and their families all across the country. But they need your help. Join me in supporting Feeding America and your local food bank at feedingamerica.org. Together we can solve hunger. Together we're Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. You're listening to Nation Talk here on Talk Soon Jam Radio. Uh, 
uh, that segment was about uh, foster care, Christian foster care. Mike, what do you think? Anyway, Yeah, hold on. Thank you. 
This message is for this all messages for all of you to need to send apologies if it gets a little uncomfortable, but out of the field, be at the mercy of someone who sends a random text is more important than your life. Someone who takes their eyes off the road while speeding along in a big hunk of steel. Crazy, right? Well, why not just ask them to stop? Or better yet, volunteer to text for them. It might be a little awkward, but believe me, you'll more at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council on the National Highway to Safety. Okay, man. 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 The following is a presentation of God Is Jesus God? Did Jesus ever claim to be God? Jesus is never recorded in the Bible as saying the precise word, I am God. That does not mean, however, that he will not proclaim that he is God. Take, for example, Jesus' words in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. We need only to look at the Jews' reaction to his statement to know that he was claiming to be God. They tried to stone him for this very reason. You, a mere man, claim to be God. The Jews understood briefly what Jesus was claiming, deity. Notice that Jesus does not deny his claim to be God. When Jesus declared, I and the Father are one, he was saying that he and the Father are of one nature in essence. John 8, verse 58 is another example. Jesus declared, I will tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. The response of the Jews who heard this statement was to take up stones to kill him for blasphemy, as the Mosaic law commanded them to do. Leviticus 24, verse 15. John reiterates the concept of Jesus' deity. The Word was God, and the Word became flesh. John 1, verses 1 and 4. These verses clearly indicate that Jesus is God in the flesh. Acts 20, verse 28 tells us, Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Who bought the church? The church of God, with his own blood. Jesus Christ. This verse declares that God purchased his church with his own blood. Therefore, Jesus is God. Thomas, the disciple, declared concerning Jesus, My Lord and my God. John 20, verse 28. Jesus does not correct him. Titus 2, verse 13 encourages us to wait for the coming of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 1, verse 8, the Father declares of Jesus, But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. The Father refers to Jesus as, O God indicating that Jesus is indeed God. In Revelation, an angel instructed the Apostle John to only worship God, Revelation 19, verse 10. Several times in Scripture, Jesus receives worship, Matthew 2, verse 11, Matthew 28, verse 9, for example. He never rebukes people for worshiping him. If Jesus were not God, he would have told people to not worship him, just as the angel in Revelation did. There are many other verses and passages of Scripture that argue for Jesus' deity. The most important reason that Jesus has to be God is that if he is not God, his death would not have been sufficient to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. A created being, which Jesus would be if he were not God, 
could not pay the infinite penalty required for sin against an infinite God. Only God could pay such an infinite penalty. Only God could take on the sins of the world, die, and be resurrected, proving his victory over sin and death. God Questions Ministry seeks to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by providing biblical answers to today's questions. Online at gotquestions.org. This is the Reverend Congressman Floyd H. Flake. Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. had the ability to take contemporary issues and interpret them in a theological context, challenging people to examine their roles as Christians or as members of other denominations that profess to practice goodwill toward all humanity. He made the words of the prophets of the Old Testament and Jesus of the New Testament relevant to the poor that he advocated for the brokenhearted to whom he preached the messages of wholeness, those held captive by historical prejudices, persons who were blind to the prospects of an integrated society, and the many Negroes who, although they were legally emancipated, were still victims of a system that condoned overt racism and unfair practices toward them. In Guidelines for Constructive Church, Martin Luther King, Jr. begins by addressing the problem of school segregation that the Supreme Court had declared unconstitutional in 1954. He noted that the court's mandate was for integration to move forward with deliberate speed. But by 1966, the process had been slowed to a crawl. Dr. King recalls the turning point when the Department of Education issued guidelines to every school district directing them to integrate or else lose federal funds. Using Isaiah 61 as his text, he eloquently unveils the guidelines for a constructive church that must be followed if the church doesn't want the funds of grace cut off from the divine treasury. He challenges the church to respond to the human brokenheartedness that invades the life of every human being at some point or another. Second, he calls the church to be true to the mission of fighting racial injustice despite fear of reprisal. He further iterates that in order to follow these guidelines, those in church leadership must be bold enough to proclaim the message of freedom and liberation. Finally, Dr. King announces that the acceptable year of the Lord is now. The failure of the public school system is one of the most glaring problems facing society today. Therefore, the church needs to reexamine itself in relationship to Dr. King's guidelines. I believe that this is the acceptable year to offer options for education to poor children who are stuck in a system that is not preparing them to compete in today's global society. This is the acceptable year to bring relief to the brokenhearted parents who see their children move through the school system by social promotion and come out at the end of the process as functional and in many cases dysfunctional illiterates. This is the acceptable year of the Lord to boldly challenge the last vestiges of segregation by gender, class, and race.
Bible uses the subject from which to preach the three dimensions of a complete life. You know, they used to tell us in Hollywood that in order for a movie to be complete, it had to be three-dimensional. This morning, I want to seek to get over to each of us that if life itself is to be complete, it must be three-dimensional. Many, many centuries ago, there was a man by the name of John who found himself in prison out on a lonely, obscure island called Patmos. And I've been in prison just enough to know that it's a lonely experience. And when you are incarcerated in such a situation, you are deprived of almost every freedom but the freedom to think, the freedom to pray, the freedom to reflect and to meditate. While John was out on this lonely island in prison, he lifted his vision to high heaven. he saw descending out of heaven a new heaven and a new earth. Over in the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation, it opens by saying, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. One of the greatest glories of this new city of God that John saw was its completeness. It was not up on one side and down on the other, but it was complete in all three of its dimensions. And so in this same chapter, as we look down to the 16th verse, John says, the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. In other words, this new city of God, this new city of ideal humanity is not an unbalanced entity, but it's complete on all sides. Now, I think John is saying something here in all of the symbolism of this uh, text and the symbolism of this chapter. He's saying at bottom that life as it should be and life at its best is a life that is complete on all sides. And there are three dimensions of any complete life to which we can fitly give the words of this text, length, breadth, and height. Now, the length of life, as we shall use it here, is the inward concern for one's own welfare. In other words, it is that 
inward concern that causes one to push forward to achieve his own goals and ambitions. The breath of life as we shall use it here, outward concern for the welfare of others. And the height of life is the upward reach for God. Now you've got to have all three of these to have a complete life. So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream. Let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spirit. Free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last.
hurt and difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. I hope you enjoyed today's program. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily the views of Talk to Generating Productions and sponsors. Be sure to listen next Sunday for, for Real Talk, Real Issues, Station Talk at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Station Talk is a Generating Productions presentation. Good night and have fun. Be safe during the King holiday. Have a wonderful week.
the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. 